At this point in the pandemic, you've probably heard stories like this. An outbreak starts spreading in a rural town. The hospital is overwhelmed. With a capacity of only 240 patients, they find themselves treating 800 patients a day. And because they can't keep up, patients die. Instead of going straight to the hospital, they prefer to wait and see. They think that it's probably a small cold or something like that. And they go to the hospital when it's already too late. Then they die. This outbreak was in Kenya, near Lake Victoria. But it's not COVID. It's malaria. The victims were not adults. They were mostly infants and children. And no one refused the vaccine. There was no vaccine. Last week, that changed. Breaking news now, the World Health Organization, WHO, has for the first time recommended widespread use of a malaria vaccine for children in sub-Saharan Africa. But why did it take so long? And how fast can it be implemented? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. As malaria cases continued to surge near Lake Victoria, Bernard's Ogotu was still finishing up his master's in pediatrics at the Kenyatta National Hospital in Nairobi. But he knew about the malaria problem near Lake Victoria. He grew up there too. In Sierra County, which is in the western part of Kenya, and that's where I grew up. Lake Victoria is the world's biggest tropical lake. It attracts all kinds of plants and animals, fish, water buck, otters, lots of hippos. And it's also a place we do the research activities as well. Because it also attracts mosquitoes. These fishermen on the shores of Lake Victoria have just returned from a night of fishing. That's a time when chances of contracting malaria are highest. If you have not been exposed to malaria before, then you have been bitten by a mosquito which is infected. If you get infected, more often than not, the disease will get severe and the outcome is possibly fatality. According to UNICEF, every two minutes, a child under five dies of malaria still today. Malaria kills about a half a million people a year. Almost all of those people are in Africa. And what happens if you survive? If you survive, especially children, you'll end up with some long-term consequences of the disease difficulties with attention and interacting with other children. And in this part of the world, it's not hard to find someone who's had malaria. I asked Dr. Ogotu about his own experience. Do you remember having malaria as a child? Yes, basically got blackouts. And the worst, most distressing thing was the itchiness from chloroquine. Chloroquine comes from quinine, a compound found in the bark of the cinchona tree. It was discovered by the Incas and other South American tribes, and in the 1930s, it was synthesized to fight malaria. But there are side effects. You have a sleepless night, you are scratching yourself. There are also reports of vision loss and suicidal thoughts. But the truth is, Dr. Ogotu was lucky, very lucky. He made it to the other side of malaria alive. That isn't always the case. On the Tanzanian side of Lake Victoria, one of Al Jazeera's documentary teams caught up with Simani, a young girl being treated for malaria. This was back in 2014. 
And Nurse Tallums, the head nurse in the pediatric ward at the hospital, says at that time, 150 children with malaria, like Simani, were admitted to the hospital every week. But before that, it was worse. There weren't enough beds. Patients had to sleep on the floor, often dying before staff could get to them. The reason we often work without breaks is because of the number of children. You feel guilty going for a tea break when a child is suffering. In that short time, anything can happen. Leaving a child for a minute could mean losing them. Simani was given quinine by drip, alu, which is an anti-malarial drug, and a blood transfusion. Fortunately, she got to the hospital soon enough to make it out alive. Another child, lying in a bed nearby, did not. This is the child I saw in the morning who needed resuscitation. The doctor came in to have a look at him and ordered a lumbar puncture. But unfortunately, the child died. By then, Dr. Ogotu had finished his studies in Nairobi, Kenya, and was starting to realize how crucial his role would be in keeping these children alive. I work at the Kenya Medical Research Institute. He now works near his family home, near Lake Victoria, too. As a clinical research scientist, and I'm a pediatrician by training, and also a clinical pharmacologist. And his job is to test anti-malaria drugs. To look into how children handle drugs given to them. And one of those drugs is this new malaria vaccine, announced by Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, the Director General of the World Health Organization. Dear colleagues and friends, as some of you may know, I started my career as a malaria researcher, and I longed for the day that we would have an effective vaccine against this ancient and terrible disease. And today is that day. The new vaccine, Moskirix, also known as the RTSS vaccine, is manufactured by GlaxoSmithKline in Belgium. The RTSS vaccine will be used among children in sub-Saharan Africa and in other regions with moderate to high malaria transmission. So I asked Dr. Ogotu what this new vaccine is all about. What is this vaccine and what does it do to keep people, and specifically children, from dying from malaria? RTSS is an abbreviation of a scientific description of the protein conjugates that make the vaccine. The vaccine is derived from the first stage in human infection. If you stop the infection at that point, then basically you are not going to have symptoms. How were you feeling the day that the announcement was made? It is a mixed reaction. It's a big milestone that the scientific community now can say it can be done. This vaccine is basically the first generation malaria vaccine. And there's lots of work going on for second generation. But I wish you would have said this six years ago in 2015, because you have lost another six years with a tool that would have possibly helped save lives of many children. And you were involved in the research of the vaccine, which has been going on for more than 30 years now. So how did you first get involved? I knew I wanted to do research. And as a medical student, got attached to the Kenya Medical Research Institute. So 
The day I went for the interview, I was told, we would want you to go and work in a malaria vaccine and drug evaluation program in Western Kenya. And I said, okay, fine, let me give it a try. And that's where the journey started. That was in 1995. The first vaccine he worked on was developed by a Colombian scientist. There was a lot of hope, he said, but ultimately it didn't provide enough protection. And that was the end of that vaccine candidate. So everybody in the malaria scientific community was taken back to the drawing board to start looking at what might be the next candidates. This is a long walk and nobody's giving up. We keep trying and see whether we are going to get there. Walter Reed Hospital, a U.S. Army Research Institute, started coming up with prototypes. And Dr. Ogotu found himself collaborating with them on clinical trials. I'd had a bit of some of the RTSS activities at the early stages with my colleagues at the U.S. military group. Their methods of vaccinating humans, then inoculating them with the disease, have garnered some criticism. 33 volunteers are being monitored around the clock at a hotel, where rooms have been converted into a clinic and laboratory. Okay, behave. This single mother says she took part mainly to earn the two or $3,000 compensation fee, but also to help medical science. In 2003, field trials started in Africa. Between 2006 and 2014, we had to set up this platform across seven countries in sub-Saharan region, provide the framework for their training, equip them, and make sure they were ready to possibly conduct a large malaria vaccine and drug studies. In the initial evaluations, it was not found to be protective for adults, and it was found that to be possibly more protective in children between the age of six months and two years. And that's why it is licensed for basically that age group of children. There was quite a lot of money that needed to be put in, and the Gates Foundation came in to provide some of the much-needed resources. By the time that was ready, we were ready with the phase three. Testing started in seven countries in sub-Saharan Africa and involved more than 15,000 children. Results showed the vaccine was most effective in children between 5 and 17 months, cutting the number of malaria cases by nearly half. It worked. In 2015, the European Medical Agency approved the vaccine for malaria, a crucial moment. Today, health officials in Europe approved the world's first vaccine for malaria, the ancient scourge spread by mosquitoes sickened nearly 200 million people in 2013, killing about 600,000, mostly in Africa. But the vaccine was still held back from the public. Why wasn't it rolled out then? Why did it take until 2021 for us to get this announcement? I might be one of the people who is biased to answer that question. I was highly disappointed because you think we had everything that we needed to have. The safety signals, the cost effectiveness, we thought that we had all that wrapped up in the phase three, but people who have not been greatly involved would think otherwise. So we had to go by the consensus. That's so interesting. One of the things that people didn't understand and say, this is a vaccine that is barely 30, 40% efficacious. Do you think it is going to have that impact? According to the studies, on average, three out of 10 children who take the vaccine will be saved from malaria. But look at it in this way, how many lives are we saving? Hundreds of thousands of children dying every year in the sub-Saharan region. Even if we can reduce this by half 
or by 40%. This is possibly 100,000 lives that are saved. If you look at this number of 269 million malaria clinical cases every year, if you reduce that by even one third, the number of events that we have stopped are massive. So these are discussions that we kept on having with the different people in the scientific community and also trying to prime governments that need to adopt the vaccine, that they should see it in this light. So for these past few years, you were running these pilot programs, as you mentioned, Ghana, Kenya, Malawi. What did you find? We started the first vaccination for this group of around 800,000 children in these three countries. So the end of this is going to be in 2022. They just look at the midway and already the data that has come out, the number of cases averted, this was a cost-effective public health tool for malaria control. So I want to talk about some of the criticism and some of the questions raised about the ethics of the pilot studies. I have a quote from the scientific journal Vaccine saying the study did, quote, not seek written informed consent from parents, end quote. And that's because it was approved in 2015 by the European Medicines Agency, and it is therefore, quote, not experimental, unquote. So a number of scientists have raised questions about this approach, not seeking consent. What are your thoughts on this? I think when you say the scientific community can be fairly academic and fairly mm-hmm. regimental in the way they look at things. Before the pilot was done, each of these three countries approved the use of vaccine in their countries. So we are now not doing quasi-experiment or doing a clinical trial as such. We are gaining confidence that this vaccine is good and is safe. So do you think if properly deployed now, today, that this vaccine will help prevent malaria deaths in Africa and beyond? And and to what degree? This one thing that people need to look at, even the insecticide-treated bed nets didn't have a very great efficacy when they were initially tested and approved. But their widespread deployment gave a great cost-effective impact in prevention of malaria much bigger than what the efficacious level that was seen at that time was. So deployment of anti-malarial drugs, we might have a much bigger impact than we anticipate, where they combined the seasonal malaria chemoprophylaxis and the RTSS vaccine. The impact was much bigger. And just so I'm clear, the most effective way to prevent malaria right now is this vaccine as well as anti-malarial drugs. Is that right? Yes. And also using the the nets. Mosquito nets. We are clearly in an era of COVID on top of all of the other things. And there's been tremendous success around the speed of producing successful vaccines for COVID. But also there have clearly been issues dispersing those vaccines particularly in Africa. Less than 5% of Africa has been vaccinated when it comes to COVID. So when you look at malaria, do you expect this malaria vaccine deployment to go better? The, the malaria vaccine deployment should go better. 
There is an organization that exists hosted by two institutions, the National Institute of Health of the U.S. and WHO. That is the Global Vaccine and Immunization Research Forum, which meets to look at the global landscape of vaccines and diseases and see where do we need to invest money. So around 2008, I had the opportunity of present and defend the case for malaria at this forum for the final stages development of a malaria vaccine and start reinforcing money for the procurement and distribution of a malaria vaccine once it becomes available. And I don't think that has been lost. You said there will be more development of malaria vaccines. Is, is that something you see coming in the near future or will it take another 30 years? That might happen in the near future because there are several vaccine candidates that are in development. By mid of this year, we had a the group in Oxford, again, that came up with basically a modification of the current RTSS vaccine that had a protective efficacy of around 70%. There's a lot of work that's already going on. And I, I think the good lesson that COVID has taught us, the DNA, RNA platforms might now be avenues that will be exploited by the malaria research community. So we might start seeing much more happening and quicker. People are not understanding the COVID vaccine development. People think it happened overnight. It didn't. Dr. Ogotu says the Ebola outbreak, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome epidemic, and many meetings about future epidemics were preparing the global scientific community to tackle this disease. So when COVID came, the COVID constructs were just plugged onto the platforms that existed. And we are lucky as a global community that the first plug worked. And that's what saved the world. Mm-hmm. So you can just say the stars were aligned. <laughs> Dr. Ogutu, thank you so much for that, because I think it is, we, we see the announcement of something or we see the rollout of something, but have no knowledge of the years of research and discussion and testing that went into it. So do you have children in your family? who you now are going to make sure get this vaccine? Are you eager to roll it out with people you know? Yes, definitely. Something that I've been talking to them about. I'm looking forward to when we get it so that I can get these children. Do you feel vindicated that you were right six years ago about it being effective? Of course, also means lost lives. Is that something that you think about? In the malaria community, things like bed nets were deployed almost 15 years after the time that they were found to be effective. Much of the delay was caused by purely academic discussions. What I'm saying is that we would not want to have a long delay, like what we had with the bed nets where we lost almost 15 years, and much of it was because of academic discussions where people are saying if you deploy nets in large scale in Africa, you are going to have a rebound effect of people losing immunity and then the disease coming back and people dying. Wow. Which was not based on any data. Oh, my gosh. And those are some of the things that we reflect back and say we don't want to go there. So let's make sure that with this, we can get to the deployment as soon as possible. And I think what has happened with COVID-19, I think the political leadership in the region will be much more tuned to listening and getting the deployment faster. 
Now, with the vaccine approved, Dr. Ogotu's job is to work with the global community and governments across Africa to make sure that happens. So that children, like Simani, don't have to go to the hospital in the first place. And if they do, he wants to make sure they're able to walk out to live the rest of their lives. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters, with Nagin Oliai, Ruby Zeman, Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilbe, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Tom Finton is our story editor. Aya Al-Milek is our engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Steve Lack mixed today's episode. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. If you liked this episode, let us know. We're on social at AJ the Take on Twitter and Instagram. Give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and stay in touch. Let us know which stories you liked and what you want to hear more of. We love hearing from you. We'll be back.